yeah, you know, I was out there. You ever find a good rock? You know, you're walking around and you look down and you think, damn, it's a nice looking rock. Of course. And you pick it up and you make friends with it and it tells you some things and yeah. you tell it some things. and Dirtiest secrets. Pretty soon you're transported to just other realms of discussion that you've never been a part of before, the likes of which you've never known. Absolutely. I mean, that happens to me probably twice a day. Is that is that like a high amount? No, two sure. two is pretty normal. And uh, speaking of two, I want to bring up this little story about an Alabama woman. Oh, she had yeah, dude, she had two uteri and two cervixes. Oh, and she gave birth to two babies Damn. after carrying one of them in each uterus. Whoa, right. that's crazy. Yeah, dude. So it was was it like a fully double barrel like situation? Like, did she have them both in at the same time? Well, I mean, it was definitely double barrel for sure. Um, Jeez. Yeah. So it's a rare congenital condition. It only occurs in like 0.3% of women. But I mean, she had it, bro. It's like one in a million chance of carrying a baby in each uteri. Bro. That is crazy. insane. It's known as like a dicavitary pregnancy, I believe. Dicavitary. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, okay. man. Well, my mind is blown. Yeah. So the older child, Roxy, she was born, um, say, on like a Tuesday or whatever. The other child, Rebel, Roxy and Rebel, she was born the next day so that would suck she like she gave birth just the longest labor ever yeah you know? and you're like pumping babies out and it's like holy shit roxy and rebel i feel like yeah there's more the the future holds great things for those two exactly yeah, and that was just happened recently too and then like that leads me into this other thing i want to talk about this has happened uh on december 20th i believe but this person was trying to, uh, well, they were hiding 17 bullets inside of a disposable baby's diaper and got caught to the LaGuardia Airport in New York, um, TSA, caught oh, wow. 17 bullets. Tried to sneak it in, huh? Yeah, man. It got triggered by the x-ray machine, if you can believe that. Of course. <laughs> um, initially, the passenger said, like, yeah, I don't know how those got there. <laughs> yeah, my girlfriend must have put him there, is what the, the guy must have said, you know? So... Well, actually, that is what he said. <laughs> I wonder if he was trying to transport just like a fully unlicensed firearm or something like that. And then just, th I mean, I just don't know the thought process there. Like, I'm not sure. You're never going to make it through the airport with anything, dude. No. The ammunition were uh, 9 millimeter bullets. So why, do, why does he have 17 9 millimeter bullets? Yeah, 17? I don't even know if that's a full... Well, I guess it depends. I think that might be like a an extended clip. Yeah, because what is it, like 9 in the standard or something? Yeah, something like that. 8 or 9, yeah. Still 17. So, Such yeah. a random-ass number. Oh, I'll just throw a handful of bullets, you know, just in case I want to chuck them at people on the plane. Right. Yeah. And just the month prior... um. TSA found a 45 caliber pistol and a magazine loaded with six bullets concealed in a pair of Nike sneakers at LaGuardia. I feel like you're not trying very hard if you're trying to put a 45 cal in a shoe. <laughs> no. Because there aren't a whole lot of shoes that are big enough to fully envelop a 45 caliber pistol. Yeah. I mean, she must have been like, what are you doing? Size 14. It must have been like a shack size shack. Or, or it wasn't. And it was just sticking out of just a regular size <laughs> a small nine in the shoe. airport. Technicians like, dude, yeah, come, real, real. Did you? Can you? Can you go through again and just try a little harder? Yeah, man, I'm still gonna bust your ass, but could you just like, could you try to slip it in 
you know, a hairdryer case. Yeah, something. Or something. Something. Just doesn't make sense. Were there any of these people from Florida? Just seems like <sighs> seems like something you would hear out of Florida. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you know, I'm Florida sure man from Florida. Or... Florida man, 2023. You know what I mean? Exactly. But you know what, man? Speaking of Florida, thank you for bringing that up because that's where we're going for today's episode. That's right, man. We're going to take a little trip to one of the greatest U.S. states ever to be created by a species of giants. The Great Sunshine State, which gives the world the untainted and unending entertainment of what you just said there, the Florida man, as we all mella mella. Mella what? Mella mella noma. Oh, okay. That's right. We're casting ourselves <laughs> off to Florida for a short getaway. And Scott, we all know that every state has some pretty ridiculous laws, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, not only the ones that are currently enforced and on the books, but if you go back and look at not only the lore, but just old laws that have never been repealed and stuff like that you know like you can't have your goat in a sack of cash in the front of your model t or whatever the hell yeah there's some pretty crazy laws dude yeah so check some of these out man as it pertains to florida so apparently florida has a law that states that people cannot eat cottage cheese after 6 p.m on sundays oh on sundays on Sundays. That's just the unholiest of cheeses. Yeah. I guess. Swiss cheese. Although I wouldn't mind if they uh if they added an addendum to that law and said that people couldn't eat cottage cheese ever. But <laughs> that's just my own personal that's just my own personal opinion. You know, when I was a, a young little little tyke, I used to love cottage cheese, but then like at some age, probably like ten, I was like, This stuff is disgusting. So I don't know what happened there. I think I just couldn't get over the look because it's gnarly. It is gnarly. Well, that's an unfortunate. That's an unfortunate law. I feel bad for the senior folk centers around there. Yeah, but check this one out, man. Chapter eight thirty six of the Florida statutes makes it absolutely clear that people cannot talk about other people behind their backs. No oh, gossip, wow. plain and simple. So stop it, you guys. Yeah, knock it off, man. Stop. Even though we're talking about you right now. Isn't that crazy? Could you imagine a police officer coming up and like, hey, you know, I just I couldn't help overhearing you were bad mouthing your buddy over there. So I'm going to have to write you a ticket for three hundred dollars. Yeah, you know, that'd be bullshit. So how does that work for the cops if they're like standing like a couple of them on the beat? Right. And they're talking like, look at that guy over there. You see, he look uh, looks kind of suspect. Doesn't he look kind of sketchy? Isn't that gossip behind that guy's back? <laughs> Right? All investigations. They just have to go, oh, bro, don't make me do this. No, don't make me do it. They just got their, yeah. got their ticket books, you know, like in a holster, just ready to go. Like, don't make me do it, man. Don't make me do it, man. <laughs> Nothing ever gets done. Nothing gets done because they're, pro- they're just prosecuting each other. Yeah, so check this next one out, man. In Florida, it is illegal to have sex with a porcupine. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's crazy that they had to specify yeah porcupine but yeah don't see that being a real temptation well if it's a law it must have yeah. been a temptation at one point right. for enough people to be like you know what enough's enough enough we have to put the is enough boot down no more with the porcupines guys Leave the porcupines another alone. person comes into the doctor trying to get some quills removed from their genitalia yeah. i swear to god Fucking ridiculous but, you know, nobody likes to smell another person's fart, right? I don't know if that's entirely true. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't either. I guess quite some a generalization. people do. Some people do, I guess. Well, Florida legislators voted in favor of making it a finable offense 
to fart in a public place after 6 p.m. on Thursdays. Can you believe it? After 6? You just got to hold it in? Damn. Uh, Only on Thursdays. Only on (laughs) Thursdays. Everybody knows. Thursdays. You can walk around freely unmolested by fart. I don't get it. Speaking of molesting, though. Oh, uh uh-oh. Man, this next one's a doozer. Okay. So, it's specific to Daytona Beach. Um, A person cannot have sex with or molest the lids of trash cans. As for the trash can itself, I'm not sure. It might, it might be free game. I don't know. I am caught a little speechless by that, and I'm going to have to call my lawyer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, I I don't even know. I, I have no words for that one. That's... Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> Me neither. I don't get it. Trash can lids. <laughs> the lids, man. The lids of trash cans. <sighs> I, I don't get it. Gosh. Gosh. But, I mean, maybe this next one's a little crazy, man. There's even a law in Florida, okay, statute 847.0145, that says that selling your children is illegal. Oh, shit. Selling your children. Okay, well. It's like the uh, <laughs> it's like the porcupine one. It's like uh, how many, like how did this become such an issue, right, that they're like, you know what, we need to make this a law that's illegal to do this. Yeah, exactly. And the que- the question I have is, did that happen after the first time? Or how many times did it have to happen before the government had to step in and be like, okay, 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 enough of this, guys. Seriously, no more selling them kids. All right, do I have to write it? Ugh, okay, I'll write a law. Apparently, I have to have to make a law about this. But yeah, I feel like, you know, just as a normal human, uh, me... I feel like it just stands to reason. Like, yeah. you know. Don't really need don't really need the specifics on that one personally. Absolutely. <laughs> it's kind of common sense. I also know I can't make sweeping generalizations for the rest of the country. But <laughs> Yeah. Pretty ridiculous. You know, but uh we're not here to talk about all these super awesome family fun facts. That's true. That's you know? true. Let's we yeah. digress. All these family we fun digress. facts that the native Floridians love as much as we do. You know, we'll just Move past those. And a quick shout out to our listeners in Florida, by the way. Your numbers are growing. Florida. And so am I. Just look at this tent. Absolutely. Scott. I love it. And hey, is that a is that a single occupancy? What? Hell no, nah, dude. This is an eight person tent, dog. Shoulder to shoulder. Oh. Not stacked? Not stacked. But enough. Today we are here to talk about a situation that took place on February second, nineteen eighty seven, in none other than Tallahassee, Florida. But first Scott, oh, what do you have for us? Dang. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you know what time it is. It is time for everybody's favorite segment. The segment that keeps people hard through the evenings and soft throughout the day. It's Trey Portray. <laughs> Love the band. Coop. Yeah, what's up? This first one, this first story is a doozy, man. All right. It's a doozy and a doozy. I love them. But after a decision by a New York court, 170 Epstein associates are going to be named yes. next month. Yes, I that have is heard. Crazy. Yes, the lawsuit, the defamation lawsuit was unsealed. 
So, I mean, this is big news, everybody, because people were wondering. I mean, they knew this book existed, right? This book of Epstein's, the late Jeff Epp. Uh, this book of his contacts has been kept from public view for quite a while. And at multiple requests, the courts have been like, no, or at least the authorities have been like, no, no, you don't need to see this. Oh, there's a, what, what, wait, what book are you talking about? Oh, that book? Wait, is it this book? Are you sure? You sure you're not talking about a different one? Finally, the evidence has been compelled. And so a number of people are fretting in their knickers about potentially being named because you know who you are. You know who you are associating with old Jeff Epp. But amongst the people who they're theorizing might be named Prince Andrew of the British Royal Family. Ooh, big surprise. To be named on that list. Um, Epstein is known to have uh, interacted with high profile people in politics and business. And some of the congressional Republicans have pushed to really subpoena the flight logs from Epstein's private plane. Like, who is this guy uh, going and hanging out with? Right. And, you know, I think it'd be one thing if, you know, like there wasn't this sort of mystery that his untimely death has made it difficult to shed light on. But he, quote unquote, committed suicide. He was suicided in prison Mm -hmm. and we were left without the opportunity to figure out because his operation like his shadiness you can't do it alone like the scope of it no there's no way that this is just one man and so this is why this is important people because now we're gonna maybe find out get some leads try to walk down that rabbit hole i mean it's a rabbit hole that a lot of people don't want to walk down because it's ugly. Absolutely, man. But the New York court ordered the release of this as part of a civil lawsuit filed against Epstein's former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, by an Australian-American campaigner, Virginia Goofrey, who said that she was sexually trafficked and abused by Epstein. And this lawsuit was settled back in 2017, but the terms of the settlement were never disclosed. So there's lots of names that are reportedly going to be released, including former employees of Epstein, co-conspirators, besides possibly some victims and then some associates that won't be accused of any wrongdoing. Um, But at least 11 names will remain anonymous because they were either deemed peripheral to the case or because they were minor victims. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy about that. I don't think the, anybody who's suffered because of this person needs to suffer anymore. It's just, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Unless they want to come Um, out and the, the right people. I mean, yeah, unless they want to make themselves known, you know, of course. Um, But this whole case has been under protective seal for quite a while since Maxwell was convicted in December of 2021. Yeah, it's just ignorant to think that, you know, oh, just Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were just the masterminds behind this thing. But, you know, they. Oh, yeah, it's impossible. Each of them, both of them obviously had CIA ties and they were being handled by other people. They weren't free agents. By any means, you know, they were being helped along by some people higher up than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, money begets money. And then they right. just like, and you know, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, quote unquote suicides. And then Ghislaine Maxwell goes to prison for 20 years, which either of the both of those, we don't even have solid proof that either of those happened. You know what I mean? We don't know that Epstein suicided or was murdered. He might be alive and well somewhere. And Ghislaine Maxwell, we don't know if she's actually in prison, bro. They tell us these things. That's true. You know? That's true. And the picture of Epstein. Valid points. That when they took the picture of him after, you know, he quote unquote died, it doesn't even look like him, man. You take a picture of that picture of him when he's dead, 
compare it to a picture when he's alive, completely different people. That's it's insane. True. Yeah, I'm sure there are some theories that we might want to get into about all of that. Um, but the court oh, yeah. has given the person set to be named 14 days to appeal the decision. The order will take effect on January 1st, 2024. So there are those that say that even though some of the victims' names are being withheld, none of the information should be released, as doing so would be violation of privacy. But there are those who say that, sure, although information is sensitive, the public deserves to know the truth. And I have to agree with the latter. Yeah. You know, like we, we need to know about Hell yeah. this is how deep it goes. And this is who is involved. Because if anybody involved are in positions of decision making for the country, get them out of there, man. Seriously. Yeah, dude. And, you know, the right for us to know about Epstein and Maxwell's human trafficking shit. I mean, this that should be a priority for the public, you know, above preventing the embarrassment to those who are on the list. I agree. I mean, it's a problem. It's becoming a worse problem. Or maybe it was always a worse problem, and now we're just kind of starting to uncover the edges of how big of an issue it really is. But in order to keep it from spreading, like, people need to know what to avoid. You know, like, people need to know what pitfalls to stay away from. And I think this is a huge part of that, so. Absolutely, man. And it's it's pretty fucking telling when you have Dick Durbin, who's, like, the senior, I don't know, a senior senator or whatever. And so all these politicians were in favor of releasing this list, these names. And Dick Durbin, who had like the uh, you know ultimate power over it all, he's like, no, we're blocking this. These names cannot be released. Absolutely not. No, no, no. And everybody's like, what are you, why are you blocking this? Yeah, like, what, what's whoa, wrong? Dude. What's what's going on here? And he's like, we will not release these names. But sure enough, you know, they're like, no, we're going to release these names. But it's only 170 of out of how many names? You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, totally. That, yeah. I mean, they're not telling us exactly how many names are in the book, and that's probably no. intentional. Yeah, absolutely. And in my opinion, these 170 plus whatever, how many they're going to release, they're like the lowest, lowest hanging fruit. And they're basically like, it's going to take the attention off of the higher ups. True. You know, by releasing True. these names. They'll probably release strategic names. Definitely strategic names. Be all psyop stuff yeah. for sure. Well, that's unfortunate. At least it's something. It's something. Well, I'm going to go a different direction. Definitely a different direction. Apparently, <clears throat> and this is from August of 2023, so August of this year, some daycares in Germany are under fire for promoting sexual exploration rooms where kids are allowed to masturbate or play sexual games. Um, uh, what? Man, I have some issues with that. Um, because when I remember daycare, I remember playing with some toys. I remember watching Tailspin and DuckTales. I'm a child of the 90s. I don't remember there being a room where I was encouraged to go in and jerk it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I just don't think that would have been, you know, beneficial to me. I'm thinking back in my own memories here, and I also agree. I don't recall having any rooms where uh, we were masturbating and playing with other children. Um, yeah. Sexual games. That's weird. Well, apparently two nurseries in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia are considering rooms where children can masturbate considering discover and satisfy themselves physically and that's a quote 
outlet. Um, there's another center in that same town of Rheinberg. Uh, sorry, not the same town, but in the center in the town of Rheinberg. And that's preparing to allow children to play doctor games where they can explore each other's bodies. Um, so they're calling it doctor games. Yes, they're calling it doctor games. And the rules that these are actual rules. These are not my words. These are actual rules that are put out by the daycare center. It tells children to explore each other carefully and to make sure that no objects are introduced into body orifices, according to the outlet that's exposing these things. Wow. Um, some centers in Lower Saxony were prohibited from establishing these centers in July. Oh, wow. According to the World Times. Um, the nurseries announced to parents that they would encourage doctor play. Um, what the fuck? Yeah, they. this is what they said. They said, this is their rationale. We're going to encourage doctor play because children will be exploring each other's bodies in the bushes anyway. <laughs> what? Uh, what? No. That's the I rationale? Mean, I mean, I get uh, like a needle exchange because you don't want to spread hep C. You know, you don't want people using the same sure. dirty needle. So you give them a place to come in and get a fresh needle so they don't give people more hep C yeah. in the world, which is extremely deadly. But just because you know kids are going to fool around eventually doesn't mean like you give them a place in the daycare to encourage it i, d- I don't know man i just no dude no let them no. play with toys and no that is have boundaries <laughs> that is insane you know that's just insane I feel like we should be encouraging boundaries it's not about shaming you don't want to shame them and be like you're a bad person you're going straight to hell but you also want people to have boundaries and say hey there's a time and a place and kids don't know time and a place no, it's an individual thing. Like all kids are going to explore their own bodies at their own, you know, on their own time, at their own time. That's just what kids do. We all figure it out over time when we're like ready to do it. Doesn't know? need to happen so, in a public daycare, dude. I just have a huge in a daycare being encouraged. So read that last. Uh, yeah, this is cringy. Yeah, so the last statement that one of these daycares mentioned, and this is this is where we'll leave this, but quote. Boys and girls will only stroke or examine one another as much as they themselves and the other children are comfortable with, and no child will put any object in another child's bodily orifice. This is just unbelievable, man. Yeah. I can't even believe this is a thing. That's insane. So in the Germany. State Youth Welfare Office of Lower Saxony stopped the practice. Oh. Which, but all of this came to light, you know, that it was happening. And may, they may try again, you know, later on. Apparently, they just think this is a great idea, but I don't see it. Who, I don't see it. Who's to say that these things are not happening in these daycares? I mean, true. The, true. These things are just the ones that got out that, that we know about. Yeah. Ugh. You know, I don't know. Let's not do that, folks. Let's stick to DuckTales. So the last the last story of our tray portray, our tray story, oh. comes to us from the conservativetreehouse.com. August 8th, 2023. So this is just a few months back of this year. Not a conspiracy theory. Almost 100 are arrested in a global pedophile and child sex trafficking ring. And I know we're sensing a bit of a theme here with these stories, but this stuff is coming out on the news. I'm sure our listeners are seeing it out there because it's a big deal. Um, But according to most Western media, they say that there is a vast global network of pedophiles and perverts who traffic children and... You know, they're akin, some people are, you know, they're hoodwinked into believing that it's some giant conspiracy. But apparently, with new evidence coming out, this conspiracy is becoming farther and farther away 
from a theory, and it's becoming more of a reality. So there's a couple quotes in the article, um, and I'm going to just read a couple of those quotes here. So, quote, members have used software to anonymously share files, chat on message boards, access websites. Some are accused of having produced their own child abuse material to share with other members, the agency has said. Almost 100 people in the United States and Australia have so far been arrested over the over allegations of having this material. And apparently, two FBI agents have been fatally shot, which led to an unraveling of suspected international pedophilia rings, which this was announced by officials um, specifically, uh, which was announced on Tuesday. So the Australian Federal Federal Police, the AFP, has said that 19 men have been arrested on charges of sharing child abuse material online. 13 children are rescued from further harm as a result of a sting from the FBI. The development brought a total number of people arrested as part of the joint probe, um, totaling 98 individuals with at least 79 arrests so far carried out by the FBI. And that is all according to this Australian agency that is reporting on this exposed pedophilia ring. So this investigation that led to these captures and led to some of this th- stuff coming to light began after two FBI agents who were investigating the pedophile ring were shot in 2021 while they were executing a search warrant in Sunrise, Florida. Uh, Florida? Yeah, in Florida. Back to Florida again. Um, there was a man who was suspected of being possession of child abuse material and... These two agents were shot, Special Agents Daniel Alfin and Laura Schwarzenberger. They were fatally shot, and three other agents were wounded. And the gunman, David Lee Huber, who was 55, was also killed in the skirmish. Wow. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that insane? So following those deaths, a probe was begun by an Australian agency, and it was coordinated and launched in 2022 after the FBI provided them with intelligence about certain individuals in their country, which were suspected of being part of that peer-to-peer network sharing child abuse material on the dark web. Crazy. Ooh, dark stuff, my friend. Man, that is just, all of it is just pretty, 79. pretty stuff to, to hear. 79 arrests. Woo! Just by the FBI alone, man, it's over, there were over 100 well, if you think All about what what's, United States and Australia, if you think about what's leading them to these names, it's just a simple. They started with the one individual, followed the links backward, right, and so far they're coming across all of these people who are involved, just from communicating with each other as this peer-to-peer message network. The whole thing is is becoming exposed. There's a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, a man. lot of people. That's pretty nuts. There's going to be more. That's just now. That's just what they have right. since August. Like there's 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 going to be a lot more. Yeah, we haven't had an update of that, so who knows what it's at now. Yeah, that's so crazy. Shit. Yeah, so I mean, we'll see. Uh, I, and that's just one investigative ring or uh, one ring being investigated and caught. You know exactly. Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Like, oh, these ripples are going to go much further than just this one story and. It'll be sad, both sad and, you know, also just necessary for this to continue Damn, and fresh. more things to be exposed. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be keeping track of that and just keeping some updates going on exactly who's going to be brought to light as part of this giant, quote unquote, conspiracy, which is not a conspiracy. It's actually happening. It is happening. So, conspiracy. It truth. is actually happening. 
Yes. Well, that is the last story on this week's Trey Per Trey. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, on the segment that just keeps on segmenting. <laughs> Trey Portray. Yeah. I love segments that keep on segmenting. Great. Don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah. Nothing better than a segmented segment. Yeah, what, what was that? Was that a was that a cowbell? When did we get a cowbell? Don't disrespect me asking about no cowbells. All right? I'm sick of it. I have worked tirelessly to keep that thing organized, <laughs> yet every week you come back here to the studio, it's... old Wayne Dale, and you walk in and you act like you've never seen it before. And you look in and you're like, ah, look at all this stuff in here. And I'm like, yeah, I've been slaving over it. Every week we come back to the studio and all of like the instruments and you know toys, whatever. Every fucking week, dude. So It's like all spread out around the room like there was... A room full of kids, but it's just Wayne Dale who is just spends the weekend doing whatever the fuck he does. How dare you refer to those instruments as toys? How dare you? You know what? <laughs> that xylophone. What? Hey man, that xylophone. it doesn't matter it's that it's tiny, child size, rainbow colored. You know, little mallet hitters. And look at that. Bro. It's those like things like three pegs with those little round plastic round circles you put on the pegs. That's an instrument? Dude, what is this? Dude, come on, man. How did that get in I, here? All of that stuff has a very unique sound that interweaves perfectly with the texture that I'm trying so hard to create. All right. Just like when I organize this closet week to week. So don't disrespect me, okay? All right. You know, Sorry about the disrespect. Wait a little bit. I'm not anyway, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, that you had to hear that. But, you know, we spat from time to time. You know That's how right. it is. That's right. Well, let's get into this. Let's get to that story. On the morning of February 4th, 1987, around 11 a.m., an anonymous phone call was made to the Tallahassee Police Department to report two adult white males in dark suits with six children, male and female, all white, between the ages of two and seven at Myers Park. The caller, reported to be a Miss Sims, told the police that she spoke to one of the men for at least seven minutes and assumed the man was high on drugs. The woman would tell the police that the man had asked if there were any other parks in the area that had ponds of water where the children could swim. She said that the children were poorly dressed. They had bruises all over the body. They were dirty and scratches and bug bites all over their exposed legs, and they looked malnourished. The caller also said that the children were behaving like animals on a small playground. Two officers with the Tallahassee Police Department would respond to the scene and would easily locate the two men and six children around a blue 1979 Dodge van with Virginia license plates. The two men were separated from the children and questioned by one of the officers while the other officer attempted to question the children. The two men were evasive in the answers. The two men were evasive in their answers and one seemed to give the majority of the answers to the officer's questions. They would also give false names. James Houlihan and Edward Ammerman to the officer and told them that they were the children's teachers and were traveling to Mexico to a school for gifted children. The police themselves are pretty uncomfortable by the evasive answers and felt that the men were hiding something pretty serious. It was noted that one of the men did not cooperate at all. And when questioned, they appeared to go into a trance like state. <laughs> a trance like state. 
Oh God, that's like your your best defense, you know, when the police pull you over and they're trying to talk to you and you just sort of yeah, your eyes travel to the opposite sides of your face. Right, right, right. You just sort of get like a dopey expression uh-huh. where you're drooling a little bit out of the corner uh-huh. of your mouth. And, they're like, hey, hey, man, like I saw you totally coherent. Hey, they're like snapping. Yeah. Like, hey, you were literally were just talking to your buddy about really drooling. Come on. Hey, dude, don't touch me, man. Just like exactly, <laughs> going to a trance, trance. Like, reaching out in front of you like. Ah, ah, yeah, pretty ah. ridiculous. And so so ridiculous. The police would detain the two sketchy men and then they searched the van. And upon searching, they discover large quantities of documents and records, including 20 floppy disks. U.S. passports, apparently a stash of nude photos of children, a box of condoms, two-way radios, maps, books, letters, a Chinese dictionary, a spotlight, a TRS-80 computer, which was a pretty high-tech, high-end piece of equipment in its day, and a device that could be hooked up to any telephone to deliver and receive messages. Um, There's also a lot of rotting food, and the van had a very disgusting mattress situated in the back. And to the responding officers, it definitely looked like these eight people were living in the van and camping wherever they could, which had water for them to bathe in. They also discovered some references to various property addresses. After a thorough search of the van, the police informed the two men that they were being placed under arrest. And this is when one of the men pretended to faint. Oh, jeez. He just like threw his head onto his forehead or threw his hand onto his forehead like oh my stars <laughs> passed out went to the ground after the police covered uncovered all this like heinous shit in the van yeah he like acted like he fainted like didn't really fall kind of like slowly rested himself to the ground or you know took one of those you know like professional basketball players when they they get pushed a little bit and they take a dive yeah. on the ground one of those really falls backward like oh, oh, oh. Come on, dude. Come on, man. So upon being taken into custody, both men refused to cooperate. In other words, they refused to talk. One of them handed the police officers a business card with somebody's name on one side and a statement on the other. The statement indicated that the men knew their constitutional rights to remain silent, and that's exactly what they did. Now, whoever's name was on that card has never been made public, and there is nothing other than a brief mention of a name on a card. I think a lot of people would like to know that name because I'm sure that name is critically important to this case. Likewise, I think there are a lot of people who would like to keep that name hidden. Either way, I also think that someone with the funds to do it should file a FOIA request specifically for that card that was handed by one of the men. Seems like a big piece of that story. I would say so. I mean, we need to know who is financing these people, who the name, like their one contact, their one call. Who is it? That's I, that's an important lead. Yeah, I, I think that that's something that should be released. I think it's extremely crucial to this whole story. So both men would be held at the Leon County Jail on a $100,000 bond each. Michael Minerva would be appointed as their public defender. Through the items found in the van and what information they could gather from the men and the children, it would be discovered that the men's real names were James Michael Holwell, who was 23 years old, and Douglas Edward Ammerman, who was 27, both of Washington, D.C., at this point, the children were taken to the children were taken to the police station to be questioned further, and through some very difficult work due to most of the children being unable to speak, they'd find the names of the six children. The oldest was seven year old Jordan Messina Arico, who went by Mary Erico Houlihan, two year old James Michael Holwell, 
who went by John Paul Pope, six-year-old Max Livingstone, three-year-old Honeybee Evans, four-year-old Galen Ben Noth, who went by Benjamin Franklin, and two-year-old B.B. Said. While it was stated that they were going to Mexico to attend a school for smart kids, it didn't add up when all of the children were found to be unaware of the function and purpose of telephones, televisions, toilets, or even what hot water was, not to mention noteworthy visual documentation of the bug bites and scratches all over their bodies. This is a sketchy situation. The, these two guys, clearly on drugs, not talking with a card, have these seven to two-year-olds, like two to seven, going by with aliases, and they don't even know basic things, like mm-hmm. what hot water is or what a toilet is. Yeah, I mean, ooh, that is disturbing. And they're so going, disturbing. Allegedly going to a school for smart kids. Right. Gifted children. Right, yeah. Yeah, right. It's ridiculous. So the oldest, Mary, uh, well, she was able to give the investigators a little bit of information. She did repeat what the men had said, that they were their teachers, but she was not sure where they had been staying recently or where they were actually going. She also said that they were constantly on the move, but used to live in the district in a house and this would be determined to be Washington, D.C. The girl told the police that while they were in the district, the children received instructions from a man they called a game leader or a game caller. And Mary would also explain to the investigators that the adults would teach them to read and play games. She would go on to tell them of one such game, which involved her having to disrobe a man and then put his clothes on herself, where she then went through the pockets looking for money. Later, she revived... Later, she would revise that statement by saying that only jackets were involved in the game. The girl reported seeing adult female members of the group naked and believed this to be another game as well. When asked about who taught them these games, Mary responded that it was the game leader or game caller. And allegedly, when questioned about bad touches, Mary denied any sexual abuse, but apparently became very fidgety and wanted to end the interview. Well, the police definitely seemed like they got right to trying to get to the bottom. I mean, you can tell with their line of questioning, they know what this is, or at least they have an idea of what this looks like. I think most people would be able to put those kind of clues together anyways. Pretty disturbing that this kid is talking about an unnamed person as a game caller or game leader. Clearly not another child. It's a man. Mm -hmm. And just talking about seeing people naked. She's seven years old, right? Yeah these aren't her parents that she's talking about so yeah definitely uh some bad things afoot here you would you would suspect yes and the younger children were observed to display behavior indicating that they were not used to being inside of a house or using a sink or a toilet instead they would request to go outside to use the bathroom or just urinate in their pants wherever they were they were also noted to be lacking underwear It was said that Max, the older boy, had a poor concept of time, and Mary explained that they were being weaned from their mothers and were rarely allowed inside of the house. She also said that they were forced to sleep outside either in tents or just on the solid ground with sleeping bags or blankets. The children were then placed into protective care, but very soon after, the agency that they were at would receive a series of disturbing and threatening phone calls. It was reported that the person making those calls to the agency even threatened to blow the place up. And this little fact is interesting when you consider that the finders were into explosives and terrorism. The police were totally perplexed at the situation and began calling around. And within hours, 
the Florida Police Department, both in Virginia and the District of Columbia, the FBI, U.S. Customs, Interpol, and even the CIA became involved, which highlights a very important question. How did all of these agencies come together so quickly on this matter? <laughs> that is an interesting aside um, that it, it took so little time for these big agencies to coordinate with each other when usually it seems like things like that take forever yeah for all that force it's a little bit uh suspect but it you know it happened nonetheless and it ties back to the name on that card for sure i'm sure it does now the police would also begin their investigations into the addresses that they found in the van one address was of a warehouse located at 1307 4th Street, Northeast Washington, D.C., and the other address was a residence at 3918 West Street, Northwest Washington, D.C. This would actually extend from 3918 to 3920. An informant related to a different case entirely told Washington police that a satanic cult, the Finders, were operating out of the same warehouse at 1307, and that the finders also housed children at the same residence at 3918. The police quickly filed for two search warrants to be executed at each location. In the meantime, due to the suspicions that the children were being abused, a doctor would be called to perform examinations on the two eldest children, referred to as Mary, 7, and Max, 6. The doctor would in fact find that both children had been molested and that Mary's hymen had been damaged from penetration of some kind. For Max, the doctors found damages to his anus. They also found that all of the children were clearly suffering from malnutrition and had bite marks that appeared to belong to an older adult. During the interview, as well as eyewitness testimony from neighbors, it was discovered that the children were raised on a farm belonging to a man named Marion Petty with, with little adult supervision. Witnesses would say that they had regularly see about 20 adults and one child present around the grounds. Neighbors would also tell the police that they observed that the children apparently lived in the farm's watermelon field. At another finder's farm in Virginia, agents documented cages on the premises with witnesses asserting that they were used to keep the children. This all seems like it just it came out so quickly and it just got really dark really fast. I mean, they didn't have the the authorities didn't have to tug very hard before you know, all these loose ends kind of started pointing in this direction. Right. <laughs> all of the information seemed very readily available. It was like the community was just ready for some for the cops to like start investigations so they could come out and be like, Yeah, look, I know this, I know this. You know, they were just ready to speak about shit. It's insane that it didn't get blown up sooner than that, but ah oh man, just yeah, feel for those kids. That's terrible. So the Tallahassee police contacted Washington, D.C., based on what the children told them, and they received a call back from Detective Jim Bradley of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. Bradley told them that they were working on a similar case in Washington and that the Tallahassee case just might give them what they needed to execute a search warrant on the premises that was occupied by a group known as a cult called the Finders. The next day, February 5th, Washington, D.C. police would conduct searches of two of the properties located at 1307 and 3918. And as stated earlier, multiple agencies would become involved in the matter, including the Department of the Treasury United States Customs Service. The reason why the U.S. Customs became involved was the implied intention, as stated by James Holwell and Douglas Ammerman, to cross the U.S. border and go into Mexico with the six children. That and for the reason that it was believed that child pornography was being produced and possibly traded and sold. 
the agent in charge was Special Agent Raymond J. Martinez. Martinez would be one of several agents who conducted the search at 3918-3920 in Washington, D.C. He said that he had full access to the building and observed large quantities of children's clothing and toys. The clothing consisted of diapers and clothing in the toddler to preschool age range. He said that no children were found during the search, but that there were several subjects on the premises, with only one being deemed to have a connection with the finders. The rest of the subjects were said to be renting living space from that individual, which seems highly doubtful. The man was identified as Stuart Miles Silverstone, born June 19, 1941. There seems to be nothing about this guy on the internet, not a single thing. In the FBI reports and every report about this, there is nothing about this guy. No follow-up, literally nothing, scrubbed from the internet. And I believe that whoever this guy was, he was definitely being protected from way high up, just like everybody else involved in this. But we'll get into that. Stuart Silverstone was located in a room equipped with several computers and printers, as well as numerous documents. Cursory examination of the documents revealed detailed instructions for obtaining children for unspecified purposes. Whoa. So shady. All of this time and power and, like, resources, all for this obtaining of children. Like, ooh, man. Yeah. Spooky. The instructions included the impregnation of female members of both the Finders and another group called the Community, which appears to be an offshoot of the Finders. Hmm. But there are also detailed instructions on the purchasing of children and the trading of children Dude. and even the kidnapping of children. So you got not only one, but you got two of these groups that they're finding as they're conducting this investigation, like linked together, all working together for the same like child trafficking purpose. I mean, it goes deep. That's That's a lot of time and effort you know, of these people devoting towards this this just disgusting practice. Yeah, and we're just scratching the surface here. Oh, yeah, exactly. So there were telex messages using MCI account numbers between a computer system that was set up in the same room to communicate with others located across the country and in foreign locations or to the computer or device that could connect to a telephone that was found in the van. MCI was originally called Microwave Communications Incorporated and was a telecommunications company headquartered in Washington, D.C. and was at one point the second largest long-distance provider in the United States. WorldCom would purchase the company in 1996 for $22 billion. Bernard Ebers, the owner of WorldCom until his death in 2020, was convicted on nine federal counts ranging from conspiracy to security fraud to misstating records to embezzlement. And the people who say conspiracies don't exist, well, it's literally a criminal offense under federal and state law. Anyway, the conspiracy was one of the largest U.S. accounting scandals of all time. Ebers was found out after an internal auditor, Cynthia Cooper, discovered something like $3.9 billion being misappropriated and mismanaged. Ebers would be sentenced to 25 years, but would only serve 13 due to his health. He was released in December of 2019 and died a little over a month later. MCI would later be purchased by GTE, which was then taken over by Bell Atlantic, which is now part of Verizon. And that whole story is a series of episodes in itself. But moving on. One such telex message specifically ordered the purchase of two children in Hong Kong, which was to be arranged through a contact at the Chinese embassy in Hong Kong. Another telex message expressed interest in bank secrecy such as how to hide money and assets from prying eyes, such as those of the IRS. 
Other documents showed high-tech money transfers to the United Kingdom, as well as records of numerous properties under the control of the finders, five of which were identified in FBI files. They also found documents showing that the group had a keen interest in quote-unquote terrorism and explosives and the evasion of law enforcement. Also found in the computer room, and this speaks volumes, was a detailed summary of the events surrounding the arrest of Howell and Ammerman with the six children in Tallahassee just the previous night. That's right, just the night before. So this indicates a highly sophisticated system of surveillance and connections with certain people who could pull a lot of strings and make shit happen very quickly, or at least keep shit covered up at the highest levels. Wow. So like typically during an arrest from what I know about this is you, the, the person is booked and then they have to be arraigned. And usually even that process takes longer than 24 hours. Yeah. Unless the judge, unless it's like the middle of the week and the judge happens to be there or something. So this person, these people who are arrested are just put into the system at this point. Yeah. And there's a full detailed account of their arrest and who all was with them and what was going on. Like that's insane. That's insane. Yeah, dude. These people were just connected, man. Connected. Or at least being watched. They were being watched by someone important, for sure. Giving them a heads up of what's happening, right? Wild. So, their duplex in the residential northwest Washington, D.C. location was decorated with global maps and bulletin boards. There was also an office that contained computer terminals and clocks reflecting different time zones from all over the world. There were also a set of instructions which appeared to be broadcast via a computer network, such as the TRS-80 computers with MCI accounts, which advised the participants to continuously move the children and keep them moving through different jurisdictions and instructions on how to avoid police attention. These particular instructions were for all children, not just the six that were found with the two men. And remember... There were witness accounts stating that a second van, a white van, with two nicely dressed men and two young children were observed at Myers Park before the police arrived. One of the residents at the location was identified as a Chinese national, and due to the telex messages that mentioned the Chinese embassy in Hong Kong, he was fully identified for future reference as Gangzin Wang, born on September 27, 1947. Gangzin entered the U.S. on January 22, 1987, only about two weeks before the two men were arrested at Myers Park. It would be found that he had a student visa, which was issued out of London, England, and would be active until December 31st, 1987. He was allegedly a graduate student in the anatomy department of Georgetown University. During the course of the evening, Special Agent Martinez contacted Sector 4, which is an internal agency, to initiate a TECS background check on Silverstone, for the previous four years. TECS keeps track of information and lookouts on suspicious individuals, businesses, and vehicles, but no positive matches were obtained from the database. Later that evening, Martinez was later joined by other lead investigators who advised him that there were extremely large quantities of documents and computer equipment at the other location, at the warehouse, and that the Metropolitan Police were posting officers inside the building and sealing it off until the following morning, in which a second warrant would be obtained and executed. On Thursday, February 5th, 1987, Walter Kreitlow with U.S. Customs was seeking assistance with contacting an appropriate local police agency to coordinate a child abuse investigation with the Tallahassee Police Department. Kreitlow further requested assistance in checking some names, some addresses, and a vehicle 
through the Customs Child Pornography Unit database and stated that there was some suspicion of the subjects being involved in supplying children for the production of child pornography. It was by this point that the media became involved and inquired into why there was such a large police presence at each location being searched and as to why exactly the search warrants were being issued. Detective Bradley correctly surmised that someone in the Tallahassee Police Department was leaking vital information to the press. On Friday, February 6th, 1987, two days after the Myers Park arrests, Martinez met Detective Bradley at the warehouse on 4th Street. Again, he was given unlimited access to the premises, and it is here that he was able to observe numerous documents which described explicit sexual conduct between the members of the finders. It's unclear if these documents describe the same sexual contact with children or not. He also saw a large collection of photographs of unidentified people believed to be members of the group, some of which were nude. There were also a lot of photos of children, some of them also nude, and at least one which appeared to be a child, quote unquote, on display with a focus on the child's genitals. Special Agent Martinez was given a photo album for his review by another investigator at the scene, the album contained a series of photos of adults and children dressed in white sheets and showed them participating in a quote-unquote blood ritual. The information was very specific in describing various blood rituals and sexual orgies involving children and also led the police to believe that the group may have been involved in an unsolved murder. That's a lot to unpack. That's a lot. So a lot. you have these investigators going in finding actual documented evidence of this stuff happening tons and as a first time you know just walking into this investigation and finding this evidence and picking it up it's hard to imagine being in the mind of these investigators looking through this stuff just going like wow this is actually happening yeah dude you know and i mean they had a job to do and i'm sure their training took over at that point but it's just so dark it's like the darkest of the dark what these what this cult was was up to and it, it wasn't just rumors it wasn't like someone called in and gave them a tip I mean, they're finding actual documented evidence of it that's insane so the ritual was centered around the execution of at least two goats the photos portray the execution disembowelment skinning and dismemberment of the goats at the hands of the children this included the removal of the testes of the male goat and the removal of a fetus out of the female's womb after which, there was a presentation of the goat's head to one of the children who appeared to be very uncomfortable. The pictures had been put into one of those family photo albums and was labeled as The Execution of Henrietta and Igor. Oh, man. Woo. Yeah. That is dark. Now, it gets pretty deep here. Special Agent Martinez would report that upon further inspection, they'd find mountains of files relating to the group's activities in different parts of the world. The authorities would uncover detailed records of the group's activities in London, in Germany, in Moscow, Russia, in most of Europe, in the Bahamas, in Costa Rica, Africa, Malaysia, North Vietnam, North Korea, Japan, China, and in Hong Kong, and probably others that were withheld from the official government files. There was also a file that was labeled as Palestinian, and yet another named Pentagon Break-In. The contents of each have never been released. There were also other files that had individual group members' names, and a large number of those members were in foreign countries such as the ones already listed. And yet more files were located that were identified by different project names. 
the projects appearing to be operated for commercial purposes under front names for the finders. There were others that were labeled as intelligence files, which the group kept on private families not related to the finders. The FBI files in this case, although heavily redacted in parts, tells of a process undertaken by the group where they would read local newspaper advertisements for babysitters, tutors, etc., and then a member or members of the group would respond to those ads and gather as much information as possible about the habits, the identities, the occupation, and pretty much everything and anything about those families. So they really did their detailed research. I mean, it was a, a group ready to mobilize at any second once one of these ads hits. I mean, they were probably like, go, go, go type thing. And all of this rehearsed etiquette would start to take effect and they would get the jump on it immediately. I mean, what predacious people. They were the first ones to respond to make sure that they got there first, yeah. Insane. There was also a large amount of data collected on various childcare organizations, such as preschools, not only in the Washington, D.C. area, but in other states as well. Two of these organizations were the Treehouse and Kindercare, the latter of which used to be owned by Henry Kravis, who happened to be very close associates to George Bush Sr., before, during, and after his presidency. It may seem inconsequential, but it's not. Henry Kravis was also close friends with Henry Kissinger and many of the Rockefellers, and he sat as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as having been in attendance at many Bilderberg Group meetings. The Council on Foreign Relations, or CFR in simplest terms, is one of many groups made up of elite psychopaths that essentially control everything. The CFR is similar to its counterpart, another group that controls everything, the Trilateral Commission. And it's important to remember that these elite people that are part of these groups are also members of other groups that control other shit as well. Members include past, present, and future presidents of the United States, as well as ambassadors and secretaries of state. Other members include the legacy media owners, doctors, lawyers, lobbyists, and university presidents and professors. There were even federal and Supreme Court judges and members of the military from both the Pentagon and NATO. Pretty much everyone with X amount of money and influence is involved in the shit. BlackRock, the WEF, Vanguard, the Monsanto Corporation, the State Street Corporation, the Bilderbergs, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, all of them. They literally control every area of our lives. But let's get back to Kindercare. Kindercare began in Montgomery, Alabama in 1969 and now has its corporate offices in Portland, Oregon. Straight up keeping it weird. It employs 22,000 people at 1,250 centers in 39 states and the District of Columbia with the enrollment of around 200,000 children. It also has child care contracts with the Disney and Lego organizations. And it is the leading child care organization and education provider in the United States, which circulates about $8 billion as of 2021. It also has over 100 sponsors for adoption. Now, this is an aside. The first time that I read Kindercare, I didn't make the connection right away, but I was like, God, I've seen like... You've seen it. Dude, I've seen Kindercare. And I've always wondered, I'm like, what a weird looking school. Yeah, it's right there on Farmington. That's exactly what I thought. Weird. I've driven past that place my whole life, and it's the weird place with that little like red tower with the bell yeah there's one just down the street from where i live right now you know what that is the tower with the bell what is that that signifies like the watchful eye they put that in there as the watchful eye like it's a it's a symbol they use 
So weird. Yeah, I dude. had no idea. They're everywhere, man. I had no idea. $8 billion? I always thought it was just some little weird one-off school that I drove by like almost every day. It's it's child trafficking. The whole thing is child trafficking. Bizarre, bro. So my mind just got blown. So the Umbrella Company also owns photo studios. Because, you know, every child care needs a photo studio. You know, they go hand in hand. They also own shoe stores and a foreign fertilizer manufacturer. Now, one might say, well, the photo studios and shoe stores make sense, but what's up with the foreign fertilizer manufacturer? Weird. Yeah, that's kind of an odd offshoot on that. And several parents would accuse kinder care of child and satanic ritual abuse. Big surprise. For example... A man only identified as Joe, who was a former Clinton Foundation official, ran a large chain of kindergartens in China where allegations of child molestation later surfaced. Kindercare was acquired in 2005 by the Knowledge Learning Corporation division of Knowledge Universe. By coincidence, Knowledge Universe was privately owned by a man named Michael Milken since 1996, which happened to be five years after the ex-financier finished his prison sentence for violating U.S. securities laws, which is another term for shady business dealings, insider trading, and money laundering. But back at the warehouse, the authorities would find a large library, two kitchens, a sauna, a hot tub, and a video room. Special Agent Martinez said that the video room seemed to be set up as a sort of indoctrination center, but one tends to think that other more sinister things were taking place. It also appeared that the group was producing their own videos which some police believed they were using to sell and trade. There were what appeared to be training areas for children and what appeared to be an altar set up in an area of the warehouse with dirty mattresses where people could sleep. The police would also find many jars of feces and urine all over that area. Martinez would note that both locations were equipped with numerous, with multiple satellite dish antennas. Interestingly, when asked by Special Agent Martinez, Detective Bradley stated that he was only interested in making the child abuse cases and nothing else. But he assured Martinez that all of the evidence would be made available to U.S. Customs for further investigation as soon as they were done reviewing and sorting through everything. Because this is a uh, Washington, D.C. jurisdiction, which Detective Bradley, um, he was overseeing, so... And D.C. police who searched the Northeast Washington warehouse removed multiple large plastic bags filled with color slides, photographs, and photographic contact sheets, which I assume was part of the group's little black book like Jeffrey Epstein. And according to U.S. District Court records in Washington, a confidential police source had previously told authorities that the finders were a cult that conducted brainwashing techniques at a warehouse and a Glover Park duplex in Washington, D.C., this source also told of being personally recruited by the finders with the promise of receiving a financial reward and sexual gratification. This person was also invited by another member to explore Satanism within the group. So you have this far-reaching, multinational, like connected, just like organization, right, that has... That gives the people who are in charge there, like, free reign to basically do whatever. Yeah. Under, like, a wholesome banner, which, whew, that is, that's power right mm -hmm. there. That's insane. 
Customs officials said their links to the D.C. area led authorities into a far-reaching investigation that includes the Finders, a group they said consisted of about 40 people that court documents allege was led by a man named Marion Petty, who was a former Air Force Master Sergeant. The group owned various homes, including a duplex apartment in Glover Park, as well as the Northeast Washington Warehouse and the 90-acre farm in rural Madison County, Virginia. The first reports in all of the major U.S. newspapers at the time disclosed the fact that the finders were headquartered in Culpeper, Virginia, 90 minutes from D.C., on that 90-acre farm owned by Marion Petty. So let's get into who Marion Petty was. There's a lot of information here, and we're going to cover a lot, including a shit ton of names. In 1939, Marion met a Chinese man named Joseph Chiang, who was posing as a journalist doing undercover work during World War II. Marion would keep in close contact with him throughout the war, and it would be around this time that he also made some close connections with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, through a guy named George Varga. Chiang would introduce Marion to Charles E. Marsh at the National Press Club. It was said that Charles Marsh ran the best private intelligence network at the time and was close buddies with FDR, Henry Wallace, and LBJ. LBJ would later become Marion's mentor and role model, which obviously shaped Marion's career in what would lay ahead. Charles Marsh's own mentor and role model would be Colonel Edward M. House, who was also a personal advisor to President Wilson and who was one of several who started the Council on Foreign Relations. Other founding members of the CFR include David Rockefeller, Herbert Hoover, Alan Dulles, Walter Lippmann, and Paul Wardberg. Not a good bunch of people. No, it sounds like a bunch of freaking war criminals. Yeah, I mean, millions of people are dead because of them. And millions more have had their lives destroyed as a direct result of their actions. Yeah, the Rockefellers, Herbert, High Heels, Hoover, who visited Hitler in 1938, by the way. Oh, yeah. Same year uh, Hitler was named Man of the Year by Time Magazine. Yes. Yes, that is right. He was. I almost forgot about that. Oh, yeah. Good times. Great times. In the 1950s and 60s, Marsh provided the funding for Marion to purchase hundreds of acres of farmland in Madison and Rappahannock counties near his own estate in Culpeper County. Marion would later arrange for William Yandel Elliott, a government professor of Harvard University, to purchase the property adjacent to him. William was on the National Security Council's planning board and was also a trustee of Radio Liberty, which was sponsored by the CIA. In 1946, Marion would begin acting as a chauffeur to General Ira Eaker, who played a part in Project Mockingbird, to infiltrate and take over the mainstream media with other CIA guys like Alan Dulles, Frank Wisner, and Philip Graham, and so many others, which they have successfully done. But soon after, Charles Marsh would arrange for Marion to be trained in counterintelligence in Baltimore, Maryland. It was around this time that he established close ties with two top brass officials who allegedly possessed atom bomb secrets. Then, in 1954, Marion recruited a guy named Eric Heiberg, who had lost his NSA clearance around the same time for unspecified reasons. Heiberg was hired by Marion as a private investigator and subsequently as a talent spotter at Georgetown University. We can speculate that at this point, there was clearly some significant money coming from somewhere. Marion would then head off to Georgetown University himself in 1956, and was sent off to the USAF Intelligence Training School located in Frankfurt, Germany, until the following year. Once again, using his connections through Marsh, he would get his wife a job with the CIA. His wife, Isabel, is admitted in FBI documents, 
to have worked for the CIA from 1951 until 1971, working as a secretary in Washington, D.C. and in Frankfurt, Germany for Colonel Leonard Wagner. It is also stated that she was given passports to North Korea, North Vietnam, the Soviet Union, and elsewhere during the height of the Cold War. So one might ask, why was this lady going to North Korea, North Vietnam, the Soviet Union, and most likely other communist countries which hated the U.S. at that time? Yeah, that's wild. I mean, like, you would not want to be there. This is like the height of the Cold War. Right. You know, I mean, that's that she would have to go. It just doesn't really make sense, even though she was secretary for this guy. Right. And that's most likely why she was going there. But the question still stands, you know, why were these people going to these countries? Yeah. Very suspicious. Colonel Wagner would also train Marion and would later advise him to retire from active military service so he could focus on other projects, which included recruiting agents from youth hostels, universities, and elsewhere. Major George Varga would then become Marion's case officer and would follow the instructions Colonel Wagner left behind until Varga himself died in the 1970s. But under Wagner's instructions, Marion recruited a network of agents all over Europe, including Dr. Keith Arnold, who was recruited in Paris in 1958 and accompanied him to Moscow in 1959 or 1960. Arnold is, and was, connected with the Roach Foundation, based in Hong Kong, which is super connected to Big Pharma. But Arnold made over 40 trips to mainland China and stayed in contact with Marion throughout his entire life. In the 1960s, Marion established connections with the so-called Beat Movement that was spreading all over the U.S. Curiously, Norman Mailer and Dick Dabney frequented Marion's Virginia farm. It's said that Dabney's widow, Dana, had extensive files on Marion Petty, files of which we're unlikely to ever see. Marion would recruit Peter Gillingham, who was employed in Palo Alto, California, working on something called intermediate technology, which is a term pioneered by E.F. Shoemaker in the 1950s or 60s, describing something that is more efficient than primitive technology, but much less expensive and smaller scale than the technology used in mass production. He also recruited Christopher Sohn, who was working at Goldman Sachs in New York, and who met Marion in Moscow in 1961. In the 1960s, Marion allowed Ralph Borsodi and Mildred Loomis to use his Virginia property for the School of Living, which was said to be a decentralist, one-world government front organization. Ralph Borsodi was an agrarian theorist and practical experimenter, and believed in a self-reliant approach in life, along with community homesteading. Mildred is said to be the grandmother of the counterculture, and was also an educator who served as a school director for 40 years. She would actually live until September of 2022, when she died at the age of 105. Wow. Yeah. Around 1964, Petty recruited Bosco Nedelkovich and deployed him to penetrate the Institute for Policy Studies, which focuses on U.S. foreign policy, domestic policy, human rights, international economics, and national security. Now, this is interesting. Later, it would be found that Bosco worked with the CIA and created a program called Operation Mirage, where they concocted UFO events. You heard that right. The CIA was concocting fake UFO sightings. He was instrumental behind the early stories of abductees admitting to the use of PSYOPs. What do you think about that? Like in terms of what's going on today, 50, 60 years later, with all this alien disclosure. Yeah, he was at the forefront of like, like that uh, misleading, you know, like trying to get that disinformation to just like cockamamie and get people believing that it was all a conspiracy and whatnot. 
so suspect, dude. So suspect. And in 1967 or 1968, Petty established a futurist network assisting Edward S. Cornish in founding the World Future Society. Historical members and contributors included legendary minds such as the famed Carl Sagan, Bunkminster Fuller, who popularized the geodesic dome, and was the second president of Mensa. And uh, what's Mensa again, dude? Oh, yeah. It's uh, the group for like low IQ, mentally stunted people, (laughs) I I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There was also Alvin Toffler and Herman Kahn. Herman, the old Hermster, he started the Hudson Institute, another very powerful think tank for the elite. Hermie was also one of the inspirations for Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, How I Learned to Love the Atom Bomb, which is a fantastic film. I will go on record at this time in agreement and say that I, too, love that film. It's great. Other famous names were Peter Drucker, Margaret Mead, the science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, and Star Trek's very own Gene Roddenberry. Wow. Jeez. Connections. Two other men, Roy Mason and John Nesbitt, were also part of that group. An insider would later come out and tell that Roy Mason was brought into the Finders group because he was said to be the teacher that was the archetype of the pleasure seeker. He exemplified man's base nature. This person would also say that, quote, they kept him around as a negative teacher, someone they could point to as exemplary of all that is base in human nature, greed self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, and lust. I know I saw all I ever wanted to see of these things. The unnatural lust part I found particularly distasteful. End quote. Gross. That's crazy that he was like the personification of the, not the quote-unquote bad parts, but like they say the base parts, you know, the parts that we're all taught to inhibit and have boundaries because it helps us make our way in the world without hurting people. Right. He was like the personification of those. He emphasized those qualities. Yeah. It's like they brought him on just to like, bring those qualities out in the members. Yeah, or just to be like, well, you have this man. He is the lower end of of what we are, you know. Just kept him around and be like, see him? You don't want to be like him. Don't be like that guy. So John Nesbitt, he was an executive at Kodak and IBM. At age 34, he was appointed Assistant Secretary of Education to President John Kennedy. After the president's assassination, he was a special assistant to President Lyndon Johnson. So many connections everywhere. Absolutely. I mean, high up there. Don't get much higher than that when it comes to power in this country. Yeah. And at this time, Marion also penetrated the hippie culture with all of their acids and marijuanas through retired naval intelligence officers William Polson and Waite Schneider. Schneider being Timothy Leary and Billy Hitchcock's private pilot. In 1971, Marion infiltrated the human potential movement and set up Ken Casey as a prominent guru, which is insane. Ken Casey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, volunteered in Stanford in 1959 to take part in a CIA finance study named Project MKUltra at the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital, where he worked as a night aide. The project studied the effects of psychoactive drugs, particularly LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, cocaine, and DMT on people. He then went on to gather his group of merry pranksters, and they went on a crusade to dose as many people with acid as they could which was a CIA project called the Hippie Movement of the 1960s. Yes. Anybody's brains exploding yet? Yeah, crazy shit. Marion also worked with Dr. Stephen Belts, who is related to Judith Belts, who herself was or is a behavior modification specialist. She was then sent to infiltrate the Institute of Cultural Affairs, which is a nonprofit organization and believed 
that grassroots community development is the way to cultivate change in society. Christopher Byrd, former CIA officer who served in Japan as a psych warfare specialist in the army, was also an author of New Age and Occult Books and was also associated with Marion. Byrd wrote The Secret Life of Plants with Peter Tompkins in 1974 and wrote on some New Age subjects like the pyramids. He also served in the Office of Strategic Services, which then became the CIA. Marion's activities took a different turn in 1979 when he recruited John J. Cox, the founder of General Scientific, a computer firm specializing in classified defense contracts with the U.S. government. Cox trained several of Marion's finders in computer programming and communications technologies and took two or more of them to Costa Rica and Panama in 1980 and 1981, which were the early stages of the Iran-Contra affair. And it makes me wonder if he had any part of that. Oh, I'm sure he did. I mean, who didn't this guy know? Had to. He was just elbows deep in everything. Like every controversy through those times, this guy is there and he knows the people that were part of it. That's insane. Yeah, man. So Cox would work through Miguel Barzuna, a prominent Costa Rican money launderer. And through Cox, Marion and the Finders linked up with several Washington area computer groups, including Community Computers, which was a front organization for the community, which was a cult run by Michael Reyes. Marion's son, David Petty, is a member of the community. Marion's other son, George, would also get a position working with Air America, like Marion's wife. Cox also recruited Theodore G. Rice and his wife Anne as computer programmers and highly active members of Werner Erhard Seminars. Cox also recruited Susan Gabriel and Judith Belts as couriers. The following comes from theconsciousresistance.com. Marion had a deep interest in the future. He called the group Futurists, which was the major component of their overall philosophy according to cult experts. Originally, his quote-unquote teachings were based on Carlos Castaneda's 1960s mystical self-exploration, which was the precursor to the New Age movement that started in the 1970s and proliferated into the strangeness of what we see today. What is a futurist, you ask? The term futurist most commonly refers to people who attempt to understand the future, sometimes called trend analysis, such as authors, consultants, thinkers, organizational leaders, and others who engage in interdisciplinary actions with a systematic process to advise private and public organizations on such matters as diverse global trends, possible scenarios, emerging market opportunities, and risk management. But let's get back to Air America, because there's a lot about this thing. We know that Marion's wife and son both worked at Air America. So what was Air America actually used for? The airliner company was an air transport and logistics enterprise that the CIA fully ran and funded. Its pilots were considered deniable assets, and its aircraft fleet was either sold, destroyed, or repatriated. The purpose of Air America was to provide clandestine air support to America's allies in Southeast Asia, which included search and rescue operations, tactical insertions of special forces, and the smuggling of weapons and trafficking of narcotics, especially opium, which was organized between the Laos government and the CIA. The airline delivered raw opium to General Powell's headquarters in Long Tien. The finished product, being high-grade heroin, was then delivered by Air America directly to the narcotics dealers in Manila, Bangkok, and Saigon, and other countries, including the United States. The CIA accidentally revealed its complicity in the drug trade when they leaked a document to the New York Times that outlined their involvement of the opium production in Laos 
even assisting the farmers with horticulture advice. According to a former CIA operative who worked in the area of Laos and had very close ties to what was going on, said that the heroin laboratory at Nam Kung was protected by Major Chow La, who was the commander of the Yao mercenary troops who worked for the CIA in northwestern Laos. One of the laboratories belonged to General Uwain Radicone, a former commander-in-chief of the Royal Laotian Army, which was the only army in the entire world other than the U.S. Army to be entirely financed by the U.S. government. So let that sink in for a moment. And the whole operation is essentially the same thing they did with what came to be known as the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s, which, again, was a CIA operation transporting drugs and, most importantly, weapons to Iran and hoped to use the proceeds from the arms sales to fund the Contras, an anti-Sandinista rebel group in Nicaragua that was fully backed and funded by the U.S. government. Just another shit show by the clowns with the clown power. Well, just to tie it all back, so all of this is connections with this guy who supposedly began the Finders. Yeah. Correct? Yes. And this, these are all like the ventures that he either knew or was deeply a part of like during his sort of peak of power, if you will. So, of course, he's going to have connections. And, of course, he's going to have resources and know people that can get things done under the radar. Exactly. He is set up for shady shenanigans. It's insane. Marion Petty did an interview in 1998 with Steam Shovel Press, noting that during World War II, he said, I mainly kept the house open for intelligence people in Washington, and OSS just trodden on through. But when they come through, boy, do we have a gar giddle and go at it. Shh. But listen here. Quietly now. Shh. Look. I run here a private intelligence game, and I send people out undercover all over the world to find out various things, and various things I have found, and I find that finding is fun. And I'm fine with finding more, I'm fine, but look, shh, be quiet now, quiet down, will you already? Boy, look, like I was saying, I've been investigating the CIA before it was the CIA. Do you remember that? Do ya? Shh, quiet down, I say. He said he would send his members out into the community to do freelance journalism and research and competitor intelligence for a variety of mostly foreign clients. He would also say that, I sent my otherwise very boring wife in as a spy to spy on the CIA for me. She was very happy about it, happy to tell me everything she found out. She found out a lot of things. She was in a key place, you know, with the records. And like, she could actually find out things for me. Important things. It was a great trade-off. Oh, 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 check this out. I got my son a job, too. Yeah, he's working for that CIA front company that I got my wife a job for as well. It's wonderful. Got the whole family here, you know. It's that airliner. Duh. Air America is its name. It was a straight-up CIA-funded and operated airline. Balls to the walls, fards. But, I mean, there are some connections with the CIA. Uh, but not to me. Um, personally. But like a little bit. Oh no, hey, wait, is this off record? This is off record, right? We could take that out. We should take that out. Uh oh. <laughs> I think you said a little too much. <laughs> He's just yeah, so honest. Yeah. Just you just get him just get him talking a little bit. Didn't even have to offer him a drink and just it all came tumbling out. Pretty crazy. When the Tallahassee police were finally able to determine and locate the mothers of the six children found at Myers Park. The women denied any allegations of satanic activity or sexual abuse of the children by the group. 
The five mothers' names were Krista Noth, Judy Evans, Paula Erico, Patricia Livingston, and Carolyn Said. As it would turn out, Kristen Noth was also connected directly to the CIA. And it makes you wonder if the other four were as well. <laughs> Call me crazy here, but I'm just going to go and assume that every member of the group was a CIA asset. Absolutely. I mean, we. I feel like... It's like, how could you not Yeah, be? yeah. How could you not be associated or involved? And the women actually claimed that they didn't know why the men had multiple fake IDs or why they had some nude photos of the children in the van, or all of that equipment, or why they said that they were traveling to a school for brilliant children in Mexico, or why two of the children's genitals showed clear signs of sexual abuse. The mothers told police that their lifestyle does not abuse children, but instead holds them in high esteem. So, why are these six highly esteemed children found covered in bug bites and scratches and were clearly malnourished and completely filthy, who, just to remind the listener, had no idea of what a telephone was or a television or a toilet or a stapler and who had bite marks by what looked like to be from an adult human and who were also living out of an unclean van filled with eight people accompanied with numerous jars of, of piss and shit. These are uh, highly esteemed children? Yeah, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that they're just high out of their minds if they expect people to believe that these children are being well cared for yeah it's, it's ridiculous man it's absurd so the women went on to describe the finder's lifestyle as rejecting private property in favor of communal property and centering around quote ongoing loyalty dependence and devotion to each other end quote the police reports described the group's parenting style as modern unschooling methods they said that this hands-on method, including trips to the zoo, learning in nature, and apparently learning how to slaughter and skin a goat, despite the group claiming to be vegans. Bullshit. Bullshit. Just gonna go and just gonna go ahead and call bullshit. Yeah. And the mothers also contradicted the children's statements by saying that the kids were allowed to eat whenever they wanted rather than at predetermined meal times. Just fruit and vegetables, though. But the fact was, as stated by the children, that they could only earn food by being good and obeying orders. So, hmm. And when confronted about the blood ritual of the slaughter of Henrietta and Igor, one male goat and one very pregnant female goat, the women said that the white robes that the men were wearing during the slaughter were just sheets used to keep the blood from splattering on their Jinkos and Air Gordons. <laughs> <laughs> saying that they weren't ritualistic robes. This wasn't true either. The photos are reported to show that the robes are clearly manufactured as robes and not your typical 1,000 thread count Charlotte Thomas bespoke with 22 karat gold carefully woven in with the merino wool and Egyptian cotton. No, they were wearing robes. Yeah, the robe kind for like robe things. Prior to the arrest of the two men at Myers Park in Tallahassee, the Metropolitan Police reported that the police were well aware of the finders, as is evident in the FBI records. Despite all of the reporting, despite all of the evidence found in the van and the two properties and everything else, on February 10th, 1987, just six days later, Scott, Police Chief Maurice T. Turner Jr. of the Metropolitan Police Department claimed that there was no evidence of ritual abuse or other occult activity in regards to the finder's organization. Similarly, police in Tallahassee told the media that the six children had not been kidnapped and had not been unwilling participants in any kind of ritualistic abuse. No way. 
The speed with which the public narrative about the Finders group changed did nothing but raise more than a few eyebrows. And in fact, some eyebrows were raised so fast and hard, Scott, that they were literally ripped right from the foreheads and had to be surgically stitched back on. But others who were injured in the excitement actually opted out of the reattachment and went with the second option, that being the Chola Brows. And interestingly, Scott, the Chola Brow was a hot item and more men chose that option than the women. Very interesting, Scott. Back to you. Those are some interesting facts there, Coop. Thanks. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. But on a real note, the whole thing just gives me the eebie-jeebies that with this clear evidence that we've been kind of laying out, you know, then they turn around and say, nah, they were fine. Chose to be there. All good. Nothing to see here. Man, that's everything that's wrong with the world. Tons of evidence. Tons of evidence. Six days later, just like stopped investigation and called everything off. Yep. Yep. They're like, oh, never mind. Never mind. Nothing to see here. And so when you look at this whole thing, it seems like the only person who really gave a shit about it was Special Agent Martinez. I mean, he was the only guy that was interested in doing any follow up on leads and building a case against the finders group and their leader, Marion Petty. So you can just imagine how shocked he was when he heard that the case in its entirety was just being dropped in both jurisdictions, that being Washington, D.C. and Tallahassee, Florida. Martinez said that he had talked with Detective Bradley on March 31st regarding a meeting to review the evidence seized during the execution of the two search warrants at those two locations on February 5th. But when Martinez arrived for that meeting on April 2nd, Detective Bradley, for whatever reason, wasn't available all of a sudden and wasn't responding to any of Martinez's subsequent phone calls. At some point during this time, the FBI would write a memo to the CIA in which they asked a very important question that needs to be taken into consideration. They asked, Uh, are we stepping on anyone's toes over there? And to this, the CIA replied, Well, darn, now that you ask, yeah, yeah, you sort of are, guys. And we're not very fucking happy about it either. Obviously, we're trying to cover up some serious shit here. So yes, you're stepping on a lot of toes over here, thanks a lot. Tell your mother I said hi. I haven't heard from her in a few days. Thanks. Mm. Whew. Scathing. And that is when an unnamed third party within law enforcement told Martinez that they were willing to discuss the case with him on a strictly off-the-record basis which does nothing but signal some very obvious cover-uppery. Agent Martinez was notified that all passport data that was gathered during the investigation was given to the U.S. State Department, and the State Department told the Metro Police that all travel by the passport holders was within the law and no action was to be taken against them from traveling about. He was highly concerned about this and wrote in a memo that the travel that they regularly took took them to countries that were against the U.S., such as Moscow, North Korea, and North Vietnam. Right, right, right. Definitely not the average trip for any old American on the street. You know, like, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and during the time of all of this angst between our countries, I'm going to go over there, check it out, do a little holiday action, see what's going on. Doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially when it's every country that had an issue with America at the time. It's not just like one where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go check out Red Square. You know, I've always wanted to see it. But this is when the donkey stumbles. The unnamed individual further advised Martinez that the activity of finders had become a, quote, CIA internal matter, end quote. An internal matter. Wow. 
Yeah. They're just like, hey, uh, we'll be handling things from, from here. Of course you will. Yeah. It became an internal CIA matter, which only means that there was some serious covering up going on, like some serious, serious, serious child sex trafficking that was international and involved multiple areas of government. The Metro PD report became a classified secret and was not available for review. This is also when Martinez was advised that the FBI had already withdrawn from the investigation several weeks prior and that the FBI Foreign and Counterintelligence Division had directed the MPD to not advise the FBI Washington Field Office of anything that had transpired. Again, how was that not suspect? And so, as it was, all of the charges, including the numerous child abuse charges against Holwell and Ammerman in Tallahassee, were dropped, and both men were subsequently released from jail after six weeks. All six of the children were eventually returned to their mothers, although in the case of two of the children, conditions were attached by a court, and some reports say that two were put into foster homes. Authorities would quickly say that the group's practices were eccentric, but not illegal. It just doesn't make sense when you look at all the facts that the, the agent who actually gave a shit Martinez discovered when he was doing his investigations, the photo album, the essentially child porn in exposed positions. I mean, these are not quote unquote eccentric practices. It's illegal. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. People looking, kids looking uncomfortable, disemboweling animals. Like, come on, man. Like, yeah, that's just has to be some there has to be some rule against that. It just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense at all. I hate it. And the specific instructions on how to kidnap children and how to trade children, how to purchase children. Yeah. Like, the secret purchase of two children in, you know, in China. Yeah. That was under the radar. Like you're telling me that these are, quote unquote, eccentric practices please <laughs> it's just a, these guys are just eccentric well, there's nothing to look at here yeah, they got weird tastes you know what i mean we all got weird tastes some people like oranges some people like apples it's not a big deal bada bing and like so the customs services and even the tallahassee police complained about the handling of the investigation by dc police one investigator would comment that they dropped the case like a hot rock yeah i mean they reverse positions so fast it'd give you whiplash yeah you know it's absolutely hence crazy. the eyebrows <laughs> shooting off attached. the foreheads yeah exactly <laughs> local police officers claimed that after examining the situation a little more they realized it was all just a big misunderstanding and there did not seem to be cause to worry about any child trafficking or ritualistic abuse you know, it was all just part of that satanic panic that seemed to be going around. And although the group did not adhere to traditional societal male and female roles in the raising of children, nothing illegal was happening to warrant charges. And that's what they were told to say anyway. But the issue was brought to wider attention in 1993 when Henry T. Skip Clements, an officer in the private sector of consulting in Stewart, Florida, obtained a copy of the 1987 report which stated that the D.C. Police Department's investigation into the finders had been dropped as a CIA internal matter. Clements alleged that the CIA had compelled the U.S. Customs Service to seize investigation, supposedly because the commune was used as a front to train agents, and this appears to be the case. Clements' allegations drew the interest of two United States Congress members, Tom Lewis and Charlie Rose which led to an investigation by the Department of Justice 
into the finders and at the 1987 investigation. CIA spokesman David Christian asserted that the charges were a misunderstanding stemming from a company by the name of Future Enterprises Incorporated. In 1993, the Associated Press reported that the Justice Department said Friday it is investigating allegations that the CIA used a front company run by a commune to train agency employees and that the CIA blocked investigation of the group. As it turned out, one member of the finders working as a part-time accountant at Future Enterprises was a man named Robert Gardner Terrell Jr., who would later be given the name Toby by Marion, who would also become the spokesman of the remaining members. Robert Terrell would also work at the IRS for a while. Hmm. This is the same technique that Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, known as L. Ron Hubbard, would use in his cult called Scientology, where he would send people to infiltrate groups of power such as the IRS and report back to him. Dude. And it's insane that they were caught for that, but nothing of significance happened to Scientology. Yeah. And it rages on. It rages on more than ever. True. And has become more of an influence than ever. True. That's just insane. Did the CIA stop the investigations because they had legitimate agents being trained? Did they stop investigations because their agents were involved in child trafficking? Did they stop investigations because of all the above? Well, that yeah, that's you know, all this. That's like, all the speculation. Exactly. That's what it all leads up to. Is like, why did the CIA all of a sudden be like, nope, we got to stop this, and like yep. made everything top secret? Only one reason. It only points in one direction that it was it was them. I mean, they were running. They admitted to running this thing. So wow, it's it's crazy. Highest level. That's so insane. But it all just gets swept under the rug. But that's exactly what Marion Petty would direct his group to do: infiltrate other groups. And so when we think about this, like Marion Petty sending his people out there to, you know, gather all this information from these other groups like the IRS and whatnot and report back to him. And the question is, who was he giving all this information to? I think that's a larger question. You're like, what was he doing with all that information? Was he just making scrapbooks in his spare time or what? <laughs> yeah. Was he just like putting together yearbook photos and just like, thanks for the memories or like, cause there had to be some carrot for him right to go to all the effort take all the risk yeah yeah man obviously he was getting huge payout power something or all of the above he was getting all the above all of the above but not everyone was convinced that the case against the finders was over and done with a 1993 report from u.s news and world report stated that the department of justice was uncertain whether the case was successfully investigated and they began an investigation into whether the CIA was involved in some kind of cover-up. He'd also report that a CIA spokesman said that the CIA sent some employees to Future Enterprises Incorporated for computer training in the 1980s. However, the spokesman claimed that the CIA did not know about any connections between the company and the finders, which is complete bullshit. Robert Terrell worked at Future Enterprises at the time of the Myers Park arrest of Howell and Ammerman, and he was fired by Joseph Marinich, the vice president of Future Enterprises at the time. The FBI files show that the Bureau searched the government's internal databases for names thought to have been used by the finders. Most, if not all, have been verified. These include Finders Transnational, Finders Transnational Ragged Mountain, Women's Network Service, General Scientific Corporation, and the aforementioned Future Enterprises. 
as with future enterprises, all of these businesses were connected to Isabella Petty and used as fronts operated by the CIA. Oddly enough, Future Enterprises currently maintains contracts with the Defense Intelligence Agency. I looked at their government contracts webpage where it shows their pertinent information, and they list their company's certification type as a small, disadvantaged business. Well, this small, disadvantaged business happens to say this about themselves. Quote, Future Enterprises is the Mid-Atlantic's largest firm specializing in computer training and presentation solutions. We represent 20 software publishers providing courses on DOS, Windows, Windows 95, Unix, and Macintosh platforms, end quote. They also have a military contract with CSCI and another with the Defense Intelligence Agency and another with the Office of Personal Management Systel Incorporation and another with the Georgetown University and another with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and yet another with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, you know. Just one of those small disadvantaged businesses, which I'm sure reaped millions of dollars during the scandemic lockdown. Oh, I'm sure it was billions. Yeah. And the Associated Press quoted a report from the Washington Times stating that Special Agent Martinez had sent his reports to Congress calling for investigations and had provided documents suggesting that the CIA was blocking investigations into the finders. The report also said that a later customs report stated that the CIA admitted to owning the Finders organization as a front for a domestic computer training operation, but that it had gone bad. Gone bad? Gosh darn it, I just hate it when my network of highly secretive domestic terrorists and spy teams just go completely off the script. Dang it! Dang it! It always happens. Cripes! And the U.S. News and World Report article mentions that Representative Charlie Rose of North Carolina and Florida Representative Tom Lewis were calling for an investigation into the CIA. They are quoted as saying, Could our own government have something to do with this finders organization and turn their backs on these children? That's what all the evidence points to. And there's a lot of evidence that points to it. I can tell you that. And I can tell you this. We've got a lot of people scrambling and that wouldn't be happening if there was nothing here. Lewis stated. The article also notes that law enforcement sources say some of the finders are listed in the FBI's classified counterintelligence files. Unfortunately, the FBI files which have been released are heavily redacted and we don't know who those people are. What we do know is that these members of the finders were working with the CIA in counterintelligence. When the finders case was finally re-examined in 1993, Several former members of the cult came forward to talk about their personal experiences. Some claimed that the group used extortion and blackmail to keep members from leaving. These accusations were backed up by evidence from local police reports all across the country. Other members made the alarming allegation that members of the group posed as babysitters across the country in order to kidnap children. This was corroborated by the physical evidence seized at the Washington, D.C. warehouse. But just as the renewed attention was being focused on the group, they had seemed to quickly disband, at least for the time being. In April of 1994, the FBI requested all available documents on the Finder's investigation and received 21 documents from the U.S. State Department. These documents were considered unclassified by 2014 and confirmed that in 1993, the DOJ ordered a preliminary investigation into allegations that the Finders were involved in sexual abuse of children and whether or not the intelligence community played a role in covering it up. 
One of these redacted documents from 1993 contained notes that a D.C. Metro police sergeant, John H. Stitcher, had been told by an unknown person to step away from the investigation into the finders. And apparently, by 1993, Sergeant John Stitcher was dead. But I could not find any information about the cause of death. And apparently, nothing came from the 21 documents sent to the FBI by the CIA. And the case was once again forgotten by the public by 1996. But... In 2019, the FBI declassified almost 650 pages of documents related to the finders. Some of the things in this document dump are incredible. For example, one document written by a federal agent categorized the finders as, quote, a well-organized child abuse scheme and that redacted in conjunction with the State Department and the FBI's Foreign Counterintelligence Section conspired to cover up those abuses, end quote. But the official U.S. Customs Investigation Reports, which have been completely authenticated by the investigating officers who wrote them and by a well-respected investigator who personally knows these customs officials, maintain that there is evidence that. Scott, why don't you go ahead and read these off? Again, that's irrefutable evidence that, quote, one, a case of obvious child neglect slash abuse involving child pedophile sexual abuse slash child pornography slash satanic cult ritualistic abuse wherein the perpetrators were caught directly in the act by law enforcement arrested on the basis of irrefutable evidence at the scene and faced serious charges which typically bring sentences of decades in prison that's one two search warrants were obtained for the finders cult office in washington dc and a complete search was enacted by law enforcement which provided irrefutable pictures movies and documents of such abuse slash neglect evidence and access to the confidential arrest reports on the finders cult from the arrests in tallahassee which occurred only a day earlier suggesting that a very high level connection to the u.s intelligence in and of itself so i mean like that's incredible right there number three All investigation of the finder's cult by the FBI, U.S. Customs, and local law enforcement was ordered stopped by the U.S. Justice Department on the grounds of national security, and the matter of the finder's cult was turned over to the Central Intelligence Agency as a part of an internal security matter. Since the finder's is and has been a domestic and international covert operation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Four, any and all investigation of the finder's was immediately stopped, ceased, All evidence was suppressed, denied, and the abused children were released back to the adult perpetrators who had been arrested in the act, and the CIA resumed its ongoing covert operations of using the finder's cult, which is used to procure and produce. Whew! Yeah, that's fucking heavy, man. Heavy. But the DOJ would conduct a quote-unquote investigation, a special investigation. Oh, yeah? What kind of investigation would that be? A shill investigation. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah. This investigation into whether the CIA played any part in interfering with the investigation, and it would result in the verdict to be expected. That of not guilty, of course. Not only would the CIA be cleared of any interference in the investigation, but they'd also say that no evidence of criminal activity on the part of the finders had ever occurred. And that put an official end to the story. The finders are still together to this day. They are apparently made up of a strong membership, only made stronger and more loyal by the whole case against them. 
As of Marion Petty's last interview on the matter in 1998, he said that the group at that time consisted of 10 people above ground and 10 underground who don't show their connections to the group. Ooh, what a mystery. So like, that's crazy. Like each person only knows of their one job in the group and not like nobody is informed about anybody else within the group. That's what I'm getting out of that. Right. But somebody knows all the people though too. Mary and Patty. And yes, exactly. This whole fucking story is just insane. Absolutely, dude. So as you know, like this is bringing light to all this Jeffrey Epstein stuff, which in turn is bringing more light to this case. And we can give a shout out to people like Tara Rodas. Um, who's a federal employee and has been exposing child sex trafficking in the United States and gave some scathing testimony at a House Judiciary Committee back in April. And I urge everyone to check that video out on YouTube. Also, Special Agent Martinez, he's worth mentioning. I mean, he went in and did a hardcore investigation in the story that we were talking about. And then basically they turned around and said, nope, sorry, man, all of that isn't what it seems. Uh, We're just doing what we're supposed to be doing here. And see you later, bub. Yeah, dude. In subsequent years, he basically just his lips are sealed now. He doesn't even want to comment on the whole case. He doesn't want to be a part of it. I'm sure he can't. I'm I'm sure like yeah. he knows, you know, he could risk the, uh, He knows better than us. Like what's at stake with him exactly. continuing his down the road. I mean, he's in a high level job yep. as well. You got to play by the rules if you want to keep those kinds of jobs. So, you know, yeah, it makes sense. And I also want to give a, a shout out to Liz Croak, and she also just tears it up out there giving speeches on on all this shit, man, everywhere she goes. So shout out to Liz. And uh, what do you say, Duder? Shall we close this thing out? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for listening, guys. It was a dark case. Um, this is the stuff that we're facing and we're up against in today's world. It's worth mentioning. It's worth getting the news out there. So if you like what you're hearing, tune in every week to Paranautica Podcast. You can reach out to us on Twitter. You can buy us some coffee if you want, or we'll buy you some coffee. Send us an email. Um, go ahead and shoot us a, a tweet uh, that's at Paranautica, um, or send us an email, paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. Paranautica Podcast, keep tuning in, guys, because without you, there is no us. That is right. So with that said, thank you all. Come back next week and enjoy. Enjoy, have a good one, good night, and good luck. Bye.